future is a work in progress. And if we want to create the kind of future that society and the planet deserve, why not start today with ourselves? I'm Natty Kasambala, and this is Super Self. In this series, I'll be taking you on a feel-good journey, discovering the kinds of things that we can do to help us become the most super versions of ourselves, both inside and out. From how we move and nourish ourselves to how we find our purpose and connect with something bigger, I'll be speaking to people from the worlds of food, fitness, spirituality and beyond about their amazing work and stories so far, as well as the best ways we can all feel good well into the future. In this episode, we're looking at something we all need, and that's food. Do you watch Bake Off? Are you a fan? I do watch that show. I think it's really sweet. I love it. I think it's actually one of the more wholesome <laughs> cooking shows, which is why oh I gosh, like it. Yeah. To do this, we've enlisted the help of Crystal C. Mack. Hi, my name is Crystal Mack. Oh, well, Crystal C. Mack. <laughs> A former chef and food artist based in Baltimore, whose work explores how food can be used as a tool for social design. And what better way to begin a conversation about food than by cooking something together? Over Zoom, of course. All right, so where do we start? Two of the things I should have had in the house, I just didn't. This is exciting. I like that. That's even better. (laughs) So we're using a very limited set of ingredients that I had left in my flat after getting back from a holiday. I figured I would use some pasta. Um, And then I've got a couple of chilies that I had in the fridge as well. And some, yeah, just some cheese and some butter too. And what type of pasta is this? I am a pasta snob in terms of shapes. My least favorite pasta is penne. Not that anyone asks. Why don't you like penne? I just think it actually tastes bad. (laughs) You think the shape makes it? Yes. Like pasta is my favorite dish. (laughs) But when I have penne pasta, loses three points automatically. So like, I don't have the fancy stuff, but I've got conchigli. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, little, little mini shells. So this is what I'm imagining or envisioning here. A nicely cooked pasta that's been cooked in some salted water. And we're draining that. And then I'm thinking we're going to dress it with butter and Parmesan and the chilies. But what I would do is I would maybe brown the butter. I've heard a lot about brown butter. Oh, you've never made brown butter? No, I've not. I've always been too scared. Brown butter really just adds complexity to a dish, but also adds like a nice toasty like note to it as well. It's so good. You want to do this on like a, a medium, depending on... You may be thinking at this point... Pasta, butter, parmesan. These aren't exactly the ingredients you'd find in a green juice, but I think that's kind of the point. You don't want it to burn, because that's the thing about brown butter, it does have the For Crystal, cooking with what we have is a really important step in understanding our own relationship to what we eat. Is it foaming? Yeah, it's foaming a little bit. I really enjoy the challenge of not being able to have all of the ingredients that one might think they need to create a comforting and delicious meal. It's allowing us to kind of get familiar with ingredients that we have at our disposal. Do you have any type of citrus or juice, period? It's very unlikely. And also have a a better understanding about the things that we're missing. So I know the importance of acid. I I, I know what about. (laughs) And understanding that every step that I take with food and taking care of myself is actually a step towards taking care of others. 
even when it comes down to my actions of like grocery shopping or buying a specialty food product. Yes, you know, I'm, I might want a specific type of cookies immediately right now. If I'm being real and honest about like where I'm sourcing my ingredients, you know, and what the supply chain of that is and where it's coming from and who's touching it. If we were more honest with ourselves about our roles, we would be living in a different world. I didn't even ask you how much butter to actually put in, so... Oh, true. I'm just like, put the butter in. But you know what this is called, though, Natty? This is called vibration cooking. <laughs> That's what this is. We're cooking off a vibration. We'll come back to this a bit later, but for now, let's talk to Crystal. Oh, by the way, the day that we decided to catch up with Crystal was also the day that her next-door neighbour decided to make some home improvements. So apologies, you might hear them plugging away at several points in our conversation. I guess when we think about the best ways that we can look after ourselves, I, I guess I wanted to know why you think looking at what we eat would be a good place to start. Just because it's essential for our survival <laughs> as human beings. Um, to me, it just makes the most logical sense to start there because it also affects how we show up in the world, what mood we're in, how we can better engage with one another, especially in a cultural sense. Today, when the world is just so divided, I think food is a, a really great way to, one, take care of yourself, but also take care of those around you, whether you're cooking it or using it as a way to get to know more about a community that you're a part of. And what role did food play for you when you were growing up? Food for me growing up was always kind of a form of escape in a way. I would sneak into the kitchen and kind of, you know, some people would play in their mom's makeup. I would play in her ingredients in the cupboard and the pantry and just make a big mess in the kitchen and try to, you know, come up with like the newest pastry that no one had ever heard of. And of course it would be disgusting, but <laughs> it would be fun and imaginative and playful. It was actually one of the first times I got to learn about playing in an untraditional sense, you know, looking at things outside of dolls and, you know, blocks and jump rope and things like that as a medium for play and imagination. And then kind of getting older and realizing that I could still have that relationship with food was something that, I don't know, I really held on to just because as an adult, you're, you know, constantly conditioned to grow up and work your nine to five and have a soulless life. And Food is really a way to tap into the memories of your childhood, tap into your culture, share a meal with someone, you know, have that point of human connection, whether it's on an individual way or with someone else. I'm, I'm really thankful for the relationship that I had with food as a child. I know that not many people are as fortunate. And I wanted to hear a bit more about how that kind of first fascination actually translated into the kind of career that you've had with food and you actually becoming a chef. I think I was just really fascinated with the sensory elements of cooking, like the the stirring, the steeping, the, you know, the brewing, the mixing, and then also the the end result and being able to fully like enjoy every aspect of the process. And I loved it so much that I, I just wanted to do it all the time. I wanted to do research on food all the time. I wanted to experiment with different cooking methods all the time, learn about my ingredients all the time. And it got to the point where I was like, this is what I want to do for a living. Like, I don't want to keep doing this when I come home from work. And at the time I was a spa worker, I was an esthetician. So I was doing facials and body treatments and body wraps and then coming home and cooking, 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 cooking. 
you know, as a esthetician, I was caring for the body in a dermal sense, caring for the physical form, but I wanted to care for it more internally, specifically for me. You know, I recently at that time gotten a diabetic diagnosis, a type two diabetes diagnosis. So that was like the manifestation of eating too much sugar and having <laughs> having that like joyful um, relationship kind of lean more into like the toxic side and not really understanding the balance. So, you know, the doctor suggested that I started cooking more healthy meals, cooking healthy meals for myself, you know, curbing my sugar. And I was doing that and I was really enjoying it. And, you know, I found that my food was better than the food that I was having access to as far as like the healthy foods that I had seen, um, in restaurants and, you know, and that are frozen in Whole Foods and things like that. And they were cheaper. And I wanted to be able to give that experience to other people in a broader sense outside of my friends and family. And I want to be able to do that every day. So that's when I really started to explore the idea of me becoming a chef. And I knew that I couldn't afford going to culinary school. So I did what most people do when they have an interest. And I changed my resume around and I started going around to all of the local cafes and restaurants trying to get a job and no one wanted to hire me because I had no experience. <laughs> I kind of hit the ground running as far as like getting out there. And when I finally did make my way into the industry, it was as a garde manger, which is basically the keeper of the kitchen, they call it, and you do all of the cold sides. So you're doing desserts, but you're also doing salads and appetizers, and the garde is typically the person who touches every dish, basically, at a restaurant. And that for me was a really great start in the culinary world because it allowed me to show key to understanding how to make sauces and make pre preserves and things like that and how they really tie a dish together and how if you don't have a lot of ingredients, just having a basic understanding of, you know, sauces and salts and how to season food and how to, you know, garnish a dish can really make it special. Being a garmange really allowed me to kind of become a better storyteller when it came to food and become a better caretaker of myself at home as a cook. What led you to then, I guess, move on eventually from the world of restaurants? You know, I've spent my whole life working in hospitality in, in some form or another. You know, I, I just mentioned I've been working in the beauty industry and hospitality. And before I entered either of these industries, I had a genuine love and passion for those things. You know, I loved skincare. I loved taking care of my skin and putting on masks and doing scrubs and all that other stuff. And with food, the same thing. I loved researching ingredients. I loved learning about cultures. I loved learning about like the intersectionality of how me as a second generation descendant from the great migration from, you know, slaves in the South to the mid-Atlantic of the U.S., I loved learning about how little things about my culture as a descendant of those people was very much intertwined with immigrant culture in the United States and just how, you know, the struggle of people in general and like the improvisational spirit of people in general applying that to food. I loved all of those things. But that industry, the food industry and hospitality, was constantly trying to make me ashamed <laughs> as a black person, as a woman, about the systemic oppression that I faced in my life, in my childhood, in my adulthood even. And 
so understanding that I was just like, well, things have to change. And me staying in this system, this industry, whatever, is really not going to make a difference from my opinion. I'm someone who believes that I don't need validation from inside of a system to try to make a difference. I believe in like stepping outside of that and creating something for myself that actually serves me, serves others like me, and allows other people to reimagine or create a world where there is possibility. And I, I think I found it so far. To fast forward to today where we are now, where you still work with food, but in a different kind of capacity and you wouldn't call yourself a chef. How would you describe what you do today? Well, the official title that I give <laughs> is that I'm a food designer and I'm a social practice artist. So as a food designer, I'm using food as the object of my design and I'm using it as a tool for deeper conversations around how we want to live in the world, how we want to engage. And I'm also using it as a tool in my social practice as an artist, kind of in the way that like a painter would use paint and canvas in their practice. I use food as a way to bring people together, to present solutions to problems that we're facing. And most of the time that work is edible. It is food-based, it is comestible. Because it is food-based, um, you would not necessarily see those types of works in museums. However, I do often work closely with museums to create food-based experiences. My work would usually show up in the museum or gallery since in an intervention or an activation of a space in a way to create a conversation or address a social political issue. But yeah, most of my work shows up in a way that can't necessarily be collected. And I do kind of make that intentional because it is more about the actual experience and not being able to kind of possess something like that. You have to be present. We touched on it briefly in terms of food as like pure joy, but also then obviously there was a turning point for you where food had to become something that, you know, like like you said, took care of you and nourished you in a different way. And so I guess I wanted to hear more about how you do approach nourishment then when it comes to cooking in, in a more literal sense when it comes to taking care of yourself with cooking. You know, when I am picking something and cooking something, I'm thinking about how I'm feeling. If I'm feeling more, you know, lethargic and cold, then maybe that means I might need to eat some red meat right now um, If because I'm, I'm low in iron. Or maybe if I'm not trying to eat too much meat, maybe that means I need to have some beets because I'm low in iron. So just, just really trying to think about the ways um, that food can be a part of my game plan. When I think about like the the holistic aspects for me and or the nourishing aspects for me right now, it's been looking a lot of like a lot of fish, um, a lot of greens, a lot of, you know, brown rice and quinoa and also taking things that I've grown up with um, that are kind of tied to my black Southern American heritage and reworking them into lighter presentations that I can enjoy every day. You know, a lot of that food you can't have every day because it'll give you high cholesterol. It'll give you, um, you know, high blood pressure. But there are things that you can repurpose or, you know, sample. Like, for example, I grew up eating collard greens all the time with smoked ham hocks in them like which is great and delicious but I've also recently figured out a way to make my collard greens vegan with the use of like a smoked black tea so it's and still like delicious and it's actually more cost effective you can buy a big bulk bag of 
loose leaf, you know, smoked black tea and use that as the smoking element for your greens. So you don't have the nitrates, you don't have like the sodium, but you still have the flavor. And if you want to add sodium, you can control that with like soy sauce or salt or whatever. So I think it's a way to find nourishment and joy without completely divorcing oneself from their culture. And unfortunately, you don't see that in mainstream food right now, especially when we're talking about wellness. You know, there are people who will shame folks for like having pork fat and fat back or whatever in their pot of beans, but then proceed to put a whole full fat like tablespoon or two of butter in their coffee and be like bulletproof coffee. (laughs) (laughs) It is just ridiculous. It makes no sense. And it's like, what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about the health and wellness that is approved by um, a more colonized mindset of thinking when we're engaging with food or more, I guess you could say like, heterocapitalist approach to how we should be um, engaging with food as opposed to embracing like grandma's cooking and how it was. You know, the more we divorce folks from their food ways and their culture, the more we can make them into whatever we want to make them into. And I think in a way that is kind of the end goal of mainstream food, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to leave and redefine for myself what my relationship with food has looked like. You touched on your southern roots within that as well, but I was curious to hear if you had any other sort of practices or things or places that have influenced your cooking over the years. My, my being a Baltimorean has definitely influenced my cooking style. Um, you know, Baltimore, the makeup of Baltimore, there was a lot of German ancestry, a lot of Polish ancestry. You know, ethnic group is black people in Baltimore. I believe the city is 65% black and then everyone else is there. <laughs> everyone else but that just gives you an idea of the makeup of the city and how those cultural influences of German and Polish history kind of work their way into my cuisine so for example in Baltimore regardless of your identity growing up here you always had sauerkraut at your Thanksgiving table (laughs) and that's definitely like a very regionally specific thing like if you were to travel outside of Baltimore or Maryland even and go to a traditional Thanksgiving dinner in America, people would be like, why do you want sauerkraut? That's like something you put on hot dogs or something you eat with like potatoes and ham hocks. Um, But that just kind of was, you know, the German influence and how folks kind of incorporated their own cultural aspects into traditional American food ways. And, you know, what is America? We're just a big old pot of immigrants. That's really what we are, whether we want it to be here or not. And we're going to bring whatever aspects of our culture exist into this like quilt that America America is. I think what you mentioned there about immigrant cultures kind of making up a country or a city's like food profile and you're so right in that it can almost become detached from the people who actually brought that there. Yeah. Uh, I think London's another great example of that where it's like the reason you have so many amazing cuisines and like different restaurants there is because at some point the people were there to bring it to you. Your book, How to Take Care, explores the ideas of cooking with limited ingredients and also the importance of community. And so I guess I wanted to hear about the concept behind that and how it all came to be. So it was released in April 2020, which I can't believe that was two years ago almost. It feels like it was just yesterday. Um, And it was released 
to raise money for survivors of domestic and intimate partner violence. So I thought, well, it would be really cool to raise money through a community cookbook. You know, growing up, I went to church and had, you know, access to tons of community cookbooks for the church as church fundraisers. And I thought, oh, this would be cool if we had like all of my friends and artists and organizers that I know contribute a recipe for how they're taking care right now, whether that's, you know, through breathing exercises or making art or, you know, preparing a cocktail, preparing a pot of beans, whatever. And that's exactly what How to Take Care holds. It has all of those different recipes, 100 pages with contributors from all around the world sharing recipes that are that were helping them take care during, you know, self-isolation. So there's like a, a ritual for tea in there. There's a sleep hygiene meditation in there. And this was all a digital e-guide. So they were all hyperlinked with like the downloads for folks to interact with. And yeah, the goal was really just to raise um, $200 or $300 for my local organization. And we ended up raising over $10,300 in 30 days, which was crazy. And when I say raising, the money did not go to us. Folks donated directly to organizations and then they simply emailed a receipt and we saw that and we would send them a copy of how to take care. To me, that was a way that when I talk about my work as a social practice artist, that's part of my body of work. You know, how to take care was really a piece of living art. And I think it's important that people understand that, you know, art isn't just something that can live in a museum. It can be about how we engage with one another every day. And art can also heal beyond like an emotional sense. It can actually be financially healing to people. It can actually be reparative. And do you have any favorites or favorite moments from the book? I do. I have a few. There's a brothy beans recipe in there. There's also a recipe in there from my friend Kim Chow, and it's about how to make a fruit salad. But it's not like your traditional recipe. There's no specific amounts. It's more like prose. And it also embraces using salt in fruit salad, which most folks traditionally are like salt in a fruit salad. But it's like, yes, salt and chilies and all of that is delicious. And fruit salad, it actually brings out more of its, you know, natural characteristics and also is good for the gut. So, yeah, I think it was really beautiful just to see how folks came together and share things that were keeping them happy and healthy and also stories that really hit home for them. I also had a friend who talked about making dolmas or grape leaves with their grandparents and just like how it was a full body movement in there and like put on some good music and like just get rolling, you know, that kind of thing. So you have the aspects of cooking, but then you also have the like full body experience of cooking, the joy of cooking, dancing, getting around and moving around when you would otherwise be just sitting at home kind of feeling sad about the situation. And the ingredients were generally accessible. Like that was something that was really important to me, especially since, you know, depending on where you're from, when you were reading it, you might not be able to leave like within a two mile radius of your home. You might have to stay in your community and go get your groceries from your local corner store, your local bodega, whatever. So it was really important to me that these were things that were shelf stable ingredients that to kind of be reworked. So canned goods, dry goods. Amazing. And what are some of your favorite things to cook with limited resources, limited ingredients? Beans. <laughs> I think I, I mentioned bean. beans a lot in the past, like, two minutes. <laughs> I'm like, beans are the best. I love a bean. 
Um, beans, nut butters, in an untraditional sense, I guess, nut butters. I like to use them in baked goods, but I also like to use them in soups to mm. as like a thickener, but also add a little bit more complexity. Also, from my days as a garmanger, just like to have a lot of little nice things on hand when I have time and money. I'll, you know, buy a bunch of lemons, buy a bunch of um, onions and pickle them or preserve them and just keep them on hand. So if I want to have a roast chicken, I can, you know, have a preserved lemon roast chicken. Um, Or if I want to have, you know, a sandwich, it's always nice to like zhuzh it up a bit with some pickled red onions, you know, it's just little things that you can do. And even making nut milks, like making your own nut milk, it seems like, it can be really overwhelming and ridiculous, but it actually can save you a lot more money if you're buying them all in bulk. And it's, it's delicious. It also adds like a little special touch and a little bit of pride to the experience of cooking. And I think that too often we're focused on the end result of health-wise. What is this doing like from a physical aspect of health? Is this healthy, this dish? Is this, is this making me feel good? But we're forgetting the emotional aspects too. There should be pride in you know, making your own food and pride in preparing like the little small steps of things. Like, you know, yes, you can go get almond milk from the grocery store, but you should also like, you can try making it yourself and have fun in the process. It has a little bit of a pride element to it and it's playful. So I think we should be finding ways to make things that are necessary for our survival playful and joyful moments. Cooking, food is necessary. And if we have to cook for ourselves, there's a way to make it a joyous thing and not make it a chore. How do you think what we eat impacts us in being our most super version of ourselves? Tremendously. It, it impacts us tremendously. You know, when I, like I said before, when I'm feeling tired and run down, I, I pick certain ingredients to kind of boost me up a bit. I, I really do see it as writing your own story. If you see cooking as a creative writing practice, you know, there are certain techniques that you would do or have as a writer to kind of bring a story to life and certain characteristics about the characters that you are writing about. If it was a, you know, a fiction narrative that, you know, really give the story flair and really really make someone want to dive into it more. The same could be said about creating a recipe or creating a meal with the end goal of nourishment or with the end goal of a specific type of nourishment. Uh, You know, if you're trying to make someone laugh, you're going to tell them a comedy, you're going to have all these different details. The same is true with a nourishing soup, for example, that you want to be soothing on the gut, but also help with detoxifying the body or Maybe it's around that time of the month and you're feeling really crampy and you want something that's gentle and comforting. That was one of the reasons why I started to lean more towards herbal medicine and plant medicine and incorporating that into my work because there is something about working with plants that, I don't know, naturally call to me, but also understanding that as a human being living in a pandemic world right now, how removed I am from the natural world. I really wanted to find a way to not only incorporate the daily practice of like plant medicine and like boosting my immune system, but also take a more holistic approach to how I'm cooking for myself as an individual and also a more holistic approach as to how I show up in the world as a human being engaging with food.
So before we go, let's see how I got on with that meal. Okay, so butter's in there, pasta's in there. Yeah. I'm gonna get some parmesan in there. I also just added a couple more fresh chilies, just in case. Ooh, I, in case I yeah. Burnt the ones. For a little bit of bite. <laughs> yeah, for a little bit of bite. And is it? It's not all of the parmesan, right? No, no. Maybe a little sprinkle of like salt, salt and pepper. And pep, yeah. Especially the pepper. You definitely want to bring out some of the flavor that's in the cheese and the peppers, yeah. and the black pepper will definitely do that. I didn't even think about. Um, I don't know, just something that's simple but also tasty. Like I never have pasta without like tomato sauce for some reason. But to think that oh. you can actually like have make your own little sauce. Yeah. Lovely. Now that we've like walked through this, I was like, okay, you know what? If it's just noodles and butter and chilies, I can totally throw that together tonight. Yeah. And it's like after we've talked about it so much, now I kind of want to have that. <laughs> it actually sounds interesting and delicious. Yeah. So I'm curious how I can make that a nice base and explore how to like zhuzh it up at home with things that people could have. Mm. I think so. the pepper is definitely a good shout, like making it kind of peppery. It's like a more interesting, spicier buttered noodle. Yeah. Sick. Well, thank you for consciously cooking with me, Natty. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. This Super Self podcast series is part of Selfridge's exploration into innovative well-being and self-care practices that aim to make us feel good both inside and out. Tune in each week for more thought-provoking discussions and practical tips and head to selfages.com for lots more ways to discover your super self with enriching stories, uplifting playlists, life-enhancing events and mood-boosting experiences. This is a Radio Wolfgang production and featured Crystal C. Mack. The producers were Ivor Manley and Cass Denton. The executive producer was Ellie Martino. 